Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. This episode, I've got another one of my own works for you. I read it recently on my one-year anniversary livestream and thought I'd go ahead and make an episode out of it, as well as use it as an opportunity to do a bit of an update and talk a bit about how the show is progressing. But first, the story. This story, Old is New Again, is a super short piece of flash fiction that I did a few years back. It's based around a prompt I did on Facebook, of all places, where I asked my friends for random words, and then I took the first five and incorporated them. I've done this prompt a few times, and I think the results are always interesting. Before I tell you too much more, though, let's get to the story. And now, as written by yours truly, Old is New Again. The planet's surface seemed normal enough from the air. Cole felt the wind whipping at his fatigues as the big craft's rear hatch opened like a monstrous pelican's mouth. He sat there in the belly of the great machine, waiting for the go-ahead from the pilot. They were still on approach to the drop site, but it wouldn't be long now. Cole checked his restraints. The thick nylon belts kept him from being separated from his recon vehicle during descent. It was a one-person craft meant for fast, multi-terrain sweeps. They called it the Platypus, roughly short for Platform Y all-purpose, but mainly due to its odd piecemeal appearance. The strange vehicle was part rover, part hovercraft, and part trike. It was extremely versatile, but uniquely strange-looking. Cole's headset chirped. We're over the drop site, Cole. You are go. Copy, Cole answered his throat mic clicking on and off in response to his voice. Cole didn't hesitate. He kicked the mooring lever with his booted foot and bore his weight forward as the platypus lurched. In a fraction of a second, he was in freefall. Cole squeezed the throttle with his right hand, feeling the little craft's thrusters take the weight and even out his trajectory. As soon as he had the speed, he twisted the rudimentary flight stick on his console— the platypus couldn't fly, exactly, but the jets allowed it to glide in a predictable manner. That was good enough for an exploratory mission like this. Carefully, and with practiced precision, Cole guided the platypus toward the surface of the uncolonized planet. Immediately, he could see that the Earth-like appearance of the planet was superficial. From the air, planetary characteristics could be deceiving. Plants were plants, and water was water— but up close it was all strange and new. He guided his craft ever closer to the planet, finally making an easy landing about a hundred yards from the shore on a calm, blue-green bay. Water landings were usually safer, at least in his experience. If you could touch down in the shallows, it kept you out of immediate reach of any land predators, and the terrors of the deep, as it were. It was a good place to be if a quick bug-out was necessary. Cole cut his thrusters out just beyond the breakers, and drifted as he checked his instruments. The water beneath him was beautifully transparent. 
Not beyond taking time to smell the proverbial roses, Cole watched for a few minutes as the indigenous sea life drifted by beneath him. A school of something like eels with long flowing fins undulated past. He saw a multitude of various creatures, some reasonably familiar and some entirely foreign. One of the most rewarding aspects of this job was the fact that he got to see new life even before the botanists, zoologists, and ecologists were caravaned in to catalog and record anything and everything. These creatures would all have unpronounceable names in a few months. He liked to give them his own, though. The buzz coral, the otter bear, the firefinch. His names were far better than the crazy Latin classifications that the scientists would come up with. Life on other worlds, the very existence of which was debated for centuries, certainly was vibrant and plentiful. The harsh climates and strange ecologies of distant planets left life far from stunted. It thrived in bizarre and limitless ways. Cole had learned early on that life would do what it would do. At first, the worlds had seemed frightening. His first few missions were uneasy or even terrifying affairs— he had learned a few things since then, though. The problem was that he had been looking at things all wrong. He had seen each new world as an odd mutant version of Earth. The plants, bizarre partial copies of the ones he knew. The animals, abominable chimeras that mocked their earthly counterparts. It was when he had begun to see things for what they truly were that his work had become the thing that it was now. Cole was privileged to see so much. The breadth of the universe, the depth of the oceans in all the galaxies that he could visit in his meager few years of life. It was all strange and wonderful. Cole scanned the tree line along the beach as he eased the platypus aground. He flipped a switch and three rugged studded wheels took over, carrying the craft a bit further. Thick foliage grew tightly together at the edge of the white sand, and only a scant few gaps offered any kind of promise of passage into the dense forest. Cole detached his straps and stood up, swinging a leg over the platypus to dismount. His feet hit sand and he walked a few yards to the trees, peering into the dark green woods. He breathed deeply, smelling the resinous aromas that never seemed unfamiliar— Trees smelled a lot like trees, anywhere in the universe, it seemed. He took another step and felt his ankle twist as his foot came down on something oddly shaped. Cole stumbled but caught himself, and then moved his leg to see what had nearly caused him to fall. The stark, creamy white of bone met his eye. His foot had disturbed the sand and creeping vines to reveal the pale gaze of a bleached skull far too human. No, it had to be human. The empty eye sockets watched him, and the open jaw gave him the impression of a scream. A skillfully napped blade of black obsidian-like material protruded abruptly from the skull's left temple, but that wasn't the feature that iced Cole's blood. Across the skull's undeniably sapient forehead, in inky black letters, was a single word. Cole. I don't know if you've picked up on it by listening to my own stories yet or not, but I love unanswered questions. What I love to write more than anything is a setup or a premise or a brief view into a world, and then to give the reader or listener just enough to get their mind moving, and then leave them to wonder. 
Just about all of my short fiction does this in some way. I think it's my way of trying to encourage the imagination of others. Not that I'd set myself equal to the likes of someone like him, but I like to think of it as a tip of the hat to writers like Rod Serling, who was quite a master of unanswered questions. So many of his Twilight Zone episodes managed to leave you with as many questions as they answered, or left you with a twist that entirely upended your expectations. This story in particular definitely draws from that well. In case you're wondering, by the way, the five words from the prompt were stunted, platypus, translucent, twisted, and mutant. I've often thought that I might flesh this story out, and maybe tell a bit more about Cole and what seems to have happened to him. I haven't decided whether I want to know, or whether I'd rather just be stuck there on that planet with him, wondering. I also think I might have to write a few of these specifically for the show based on interactive prompts from the patrons and listeners. I hope you liked the story, and if you did, let me know. And on a related note, let's talk a little bit about the show itself. As Fado continues to mature, and as I'm getting more comfortable with podcasting, I'm thinking that I also would like to officially slightly expand the scope of the show. That's to say that when I began, I was leaning heavily into fairy tales and folklore, and I still want to include those because they're fascinating, and I think they're worth exploring. But I've found that I also have very much enjoyed reading science fiction or classic stories along with my own work. I don't see any reason to try to limit the kinds of stories I'm doing as long as I continue to focus on the heart of the show, which is to entertain you, my listeners, with fantastic tales. Still, I'm happy just to see where our adventure together goes, and all it really means is that when I find or think of a story to bring to you, I don't have to consider whether it will fit a prescribed theme. A good story is a good story, if you ask me, and so if it's a fairy tale, or sci-fi adventure, or detective pulp, then I say it's fair game. I should probably consider how to convey that in my introduction, but one step at a time. Okay, so the next item of business is a comment from patron David Cooper about episode 9 of season 2, The Dummy That Lived. He says, Hi, John. I know your podcast isn't focused on linguistics, but I'm getting stuck on the line quite invisible to moral eyes at the start. I looked around some and didn't find references to moral being used in the place of mortal, but if this means moral in today's use, I find it more interesting. For starters, I'm certain there would be at least one person amoral enough that they'd be able to see the real. Thoughts on that? Thank you, David. Okay. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to go back and catch it so you can see what David is referring to. So, I checked into it to make sure that there wasn't some kind of transcription error, and it seems that the word in the original text was in fact moral and not mortal. Had it been mortal, it certainly would have been simpler, but it looks like Baum actually intended moral. So, here's what I think. There is certainly precedent for creatures that are able to choose whether they are seen or not. Fairies, spirits, and beings of all kinds show up in stories and folklore, so we know that Baum may be drawing on those abilities for his fairy, Tanko Mankey the Rill, 
Baum doesn't expressly say that the Rill are always invisible, but it could be one assumption. Personally, I think it's likely that he's invisible if it suits him, but that he could certainly be seen if he chose, which would be in line with most of the fair folk, I think. The second assumption that I'm going to make to form my opinion is that Baum is referring to people as moral and fairies as amoral, meaning that people in general are governed by a sense of right and wrong or good and bad, and fairies in general are not. It would fit well with the way fairies interact with people in folklore, basically catering to their own whimsical nature regardless of human rules. My opinion, then, is that Tanko Mankey is just doing what fairies do, and following his fancy, as opposed to considering human, or moral, propriety. That's one take, anyway. It's also possible that there is a fair amount of sarcasm at play here, considering the apparent message of the story. The idea of a mannequin shallowly walking about, attempting to fit in with society, and fixating on fine clothes, beauty, and generally the behavior of everyone around it, while also being criticized or complimented and eventually literally run over by that same society. It's definitely an interesting detail of the story, however briefly it shows up. Those are my thoughts on it, but maybe someone else listening has more to say. Let me know what you think. Thank you again, David, for the interesting comment. So now, let me just remind you, before we wrap up today, that I'm giving away a Lapgan from Block M Farm and Crafts the first week of July to an active patron. If you join before July, you'll have a shot at winning. If you'd like to see the Lapgan, I've got a picture on my social media pages. It's pretty amazing. There is a lot more coming up but I don't want to dump too much information on you all at once. So stay tuned for more exciting stuff. There are more collaborations right around the corner, more stories too, and other stuff you definitely won't want to miss. Now, if you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss an episode. You can also go to fidopodcast.com and listen on any device. Make sure and share Fido with your friends and family if you like what you're hearing. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. Don't miss the new store as well. T-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, and even a Fido pint glass can all be yours. Look for the link on my website. You also don't want to miss out on the exclusive new Fedork Fan t-shirt. You'll have to message me to order one because they're not on any website. So if you're a true Fedork, let me know. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fedo Podcast. And if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There is behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, merchandise discounts, and if you join, you'll get a personal handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fado sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of Season 2, Episode 25. Watch for the next episode of Fado coming soon. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time. 
Fido is a member of the Pizza Rice Podcasting Collaborative. Check us out at pizzaricepodcast.com.